Of the four New Testament Gospels, the book of John is, well, it's different. Like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it presents a retelling of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But John is notably distinct in what it emphasizes, and what it includes, and what it leaves out, in the order and structure of its account, and in the image of Jesus it constructs. One of the early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, famously characterized the differences between the gospel narratives in this way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote down the bodily things, the physical facts, whereas John, who was encouraged by his pupils and irresistibly moved by the Spirit, wrote a spiritual gospel. In this teaching series, we'll explore John's distinctive spiritual gospel, and along the way, we will reacquaint ourselves with his overtly theological retelling of Jesus, the Word made flesh, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. This is the spiritual gospel. So we've taken a bit of a detour in our regular sermon series on the Gospel of John to spend three weeks with the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Uh, it's a contention of mine that most people that have spent uh, time within the church will know this story. You might uh, understand some of the contours of this story. And what we've attempted to do over the last three weeks is to, is to shine a light on some of the aspects that go under-acknowledged, I guess you could say. Uh, and tonight really is, is no different. Uh, in order for us to get to the, uh, the set of texts that I would like us to contemplate this evening, I'm gonna do a bit of review. I know that you all hate it when uh, pastors just stand up here and they rattle on about stuff that you've already heard about from last week or two weeks ago, but I'm gonna do that anyway. Uh, and I'm just gonna trust that you guys will stick with me. So what we have here is Jesus and his disciples that have traveled back to Jerusalem. The only thing that you really need to have tucked away uh, is actually it's two things. One, people want to kill Jesus, specifically the religious leaders in Jerusalem. So the idea that Jesus is going to go back near Jerusalem where his friends Mary and Martha live and where their brother Lazarus lives, this is Jesus in a sense saying, I am setting my eyes on the end of the story. I am going to place myself in a context where the religious leaders could uh, plot together to end my life. Right before uh, this story in John chapter 11, in fact, religious leaders have picked up stones to throw them at Jesus because they are not happy with the way that he is describing who he is. They're accusing him of blasphemy and saying that he is making too big of claims for himself in relationship to God. Namely, Jesus says, I and the Father, I and God, we are one. And the religious leaders do not like this whatsoever. The other thing that you need to know, and this is actually gonna, gonna come up, um, Jesus hears that his friend is sick. He hears that Lazarus is sick, but instead of getting the message and immediately going to Bethany, which is a couple miles outside of Jerusalem, he sits and he waits. And in so doing, he sets up this climactic story of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. That was a big spoiler. I'm sorry about that, guys. That's the end of the story. We'll get there, and actually, I'm gonna show you, we're not even gonna spend a whole lot of time talking about that this evening. So I'm just gonna read through the text, and you'll notice I have some asterisks uh, included in the text to let me know that there's an interesting thing that I might want to say about that, okay? Uh, hopefully they will be 
somewhat interesting. Okay, this is John chapter 11, beginning in verse 17, and the only uh, introduction beforehand is Jesus has told his disciples it's time to go and we're gonna go towards uh, this place to be with Lazarus and the family. Okay, when Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Okay, I do want to say this because I think it's important for us to understand the timing in which John is telling this story. So on day one, Jesus gets the message from Mary and Martha that their brother is sick, nearing death. He hears this message and he remains, it says, for two days. That would be days two and three. And then on the fourth day, Jesus travels to and arrives in Bethany. It wouldn't have been more than one day's, uh, a one day journey for him to walk from wherever he was to Jerusalem or to the outskirts of Jerusalem in Bethany, which tells us that Lazarus has died here on day one, probably shortly after the message has been sent. It's typical Jewish practice that people are buried on the same day in which they die. So we learn from this little throwaway line from the author of John that, that Lazarus has died here on day one. He's been in the tomb for four days when Jesus shows up uh, to do what he's about to do. Also, I, I know that I've said this a couple of times, but just for the benefit of the people that haven't been with us over the last couple of weeks, uh, in, in Jewish thought, the soul stays close to the body for the first three days after death, but on the fourth day, the soul kind of takes off. So some people have made the claim that the fact that Jesus is going to, uh, to Bethany on the fourth day that Lazarus has been dead, that Lazarus is really, really dead versus just sort of dead, okay? We have no concept of this in our culture, but try to think as a first century Jew in this mindset that now Jesus has really missed the boat, okay? So he's gone down, Lazarus has been dead for four days. Bethany was a little less than two miles from Jerusalem. Many Jews had come to comfort Martha and Mary after their brother's death. We looked at this last week. This is a practice known as sitting Shiva. Say sitting Shiva. Beautiful. So after someone passes away, on that same day, the house becomes filled with people and they really just sit. They bring the food, they, they, just, they, they sit with their friends, they weep with those who are weeping, they're present in the midst of disaster, they're present in the midst of mourning. And actually within the Jewish rituals of mourning, this begins a whole year-long process of grieving the dead. Okay, which in America, we don't have that sort of process. So this is beautiful in how they are so intentional about allowing space for grief uh, in the life of, of people who have suffered loss to come to fruition. So Martha and Mary, they are in their home. They're actually supposed to stay in their home for these seven days of sitting Shiva, which is gonna become important a little bit later. Uh, but other people have come to mourn with them. Continues, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him while Mary remained in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask God, God will give 
to you. I think the asterisk on that last page was basically to say that they're not supposed to be leaving the house. Martha is leaving, sort of secretively, because remember, Jesus is near a danger zone. They don't want to tip their hats to the authorities that Jesus has been here so that they can pounce and begin to uh, make moves towards his eventual death. But Martha is saying, if you have just been here, my brother would not be dead. They see this power that's in Jesus, but they don't quite know what to do with it. Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. I mentioned this last week, but I didn't incorporate my really beautiful slide <laughs> with my really high-tech transitions. I just wanna show it to you here, okay? In first century Jewish culture, they would have had an idea of history as linear, where they currently were occupying space was in something known as this age or this present age. And everyone was looking forward to the age to come that would be initiated by God's Messiah showing up at this specific moment and getting rid of the power structures of the day. Whoever Israel was subjugated to at that time, the Messiah would completely demolish that, allow God's kingdom to be placed on earth, and they would enter into the age to come. This is what they were expecting. So Jesus says, Martha, your brother will rise again. And she says, well, duh, I know that. Everyone is going to rise again. But this is what's so important. When Jesus goes to the cross and when Jesus dies, three days later, what happens to him? He rises from the dead, okay? Uh, he's, he's dead, and three days later, he comes back to life. That's the, that's the core of the Christian faith there. That's the, that's the, that's the, the nutty goodness there, the, the nougat of the candy bar that is the gospel. I'm gonna keep working. That one's gonna be good. I'm gonna come back to that. Give me a couple weeks. I'm gonna workshop that. We'll, we'll see it. But when Jesus is raised from the dead, what he's saying is, my resurrection is initiating something that you're not expecting. Watch it, this is really good. It's initiating a time of this age and the age to come. It's a hybrid moment. Heaven comes to earth. Resurrection is happening here and now. It's available to all of us. This is what Jesus is saying. And this is, there's hints of this in the gospel that Jesus is about to overturn every thought that people have about what the world is and where it is going. And for Christians, this is absolutely beautiful because what it is saying to us is we already experience the age to come here and now. It's not just Someday when we die, we'll fly away. Sing it with me, saints. <laughs> Some glad morning when this life is o'er. It's pretty sad, but I'll take it. <laughs> Jesus, upon hearing that song, would say, what? No. Resurrection life happens now. It begins now. We experience it. And I'm going to say this too, because Christians are good for internalizing. We get to participate in it now. We get to bring heaven to earth now. We get to build the kingdom now. It's not just somewhere out there, when I die, I'll fly away, stop. It's, it's now. Glimpses, hints, um, little breadcrumbs that allow us to see that what Jesus has done has changed everything. Okay, 
that's, that's a big, big rabbit trail that we could go down, but we're not going to because we're, we're trying to do some, do some business here with this passage. Jesus says to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. She's got no clue what he's saying. Whoever believes in me will live even though they die. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? And she says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the one who is going to initiate God's age to come here and now, but she doesn't know what that means or the lengths to which Jesus is about to go. I know that you're the Christ, God's son, the one who is coming into the world. And after she said this, she went and spoke privately to her sister Mary. She goes back home, kind of taps Mary on the shoulder and says, hey, Jesus is here. Don't freak out. We don't want to let everybody know that he's here, but he wants to talk to you. Like go, go see him because remember, their brother is dead. These are the people that Jesus loves. Lazarus is described as the one whom Jesus loves. She says this privately to her sister Mary. The teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to Jesus. He hadn't entered the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. He's standing outside of the village, not calling attention to himself, saying quietly to Martha, go get Mary. I wanna to talk to her. When the Jews who were comforting Mary in the house saw her get up quickly and leave, they followed her, which is what you do when you're in the presence of someone who is in grief and in mourning. You're there to be with them. And if they go, you go with them. This is important for the story, though. Because remember, when Jesus goes near Jerusalem, what might happen to him? They might, yeah, they might get to him. Spoiler, we already know where this one's going, too. So the fact that these mourners, these people that are sitting Shiva with Mary and Martha, that they're going with Mary, they're gonna see Jesus there, the gig's gonna be up, and then they're going to, there's gonna be things that happen as a result of this. They assume, it says, that she was going to mourn at the tomb and they wanted to be there for their friend in this moment, but when Mary arrives where Jesus was and she sees him, she fell at his feet and said the same thing that her sister said. If you had only been here, then my brother wouldn't be dead. Implication, where were you? What happened? You love Lazarus. We told you about this four days ago. You could have gotten on your, your horse or your camel or your whatever it is that they're riding back then, your donkeys and your chariots, <laughs> whatever. You could have gotten here, Jesus. Why didn't you show up and then do something? And maybe even if you got here, this is a, this is a reach. Maybe even if you got here within three days, his spirit would have been close enough. You could have grabbed it and thrown it back in. But now he's super dead. <laughs> if only you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying also, he was deeply disturbed and troubled. This is where we went last week with the fact that Jesus is, is moved. He knows what's gonna happen. He knows what he's going to do. He knows that he's going to the tomb to pray and to thank God that Lazarus will be alive Yet, in the moment, even knowing the end of the story, the good ending of the story, Jesus is emotionally wrecked because his friend, the person that he loves, is emotionally wrecked, and Jesus can empathize with the best of them because Jesus knows us and cares about us and loves us. And my whole argument last week was, and that's also a, a picture of God. Jesus is supposed to be the very imprint 
of God's finger, like the, the one who shows the world who God is, is Jesus. And if Jesus is crying with his friends, then God cries with his people when they hurt, which isn't usually the picture that we have of God. He's just the angry guy in the sky that wants to zap you when you do the bad things. That's not a good biblical interpretation of what God is actually all about. Jesus asks, where have you laid him? And the people say, come and, and see, I'll show you where he is. And Jesus begins to cry. Or for you King James types, Jesus wept. He is moved not only uh, internally, but it begins to express itself outwardly where you see Jesus weeping, which causes people to say, see how much he loved him. But then some of them begin to ask questions. Isn't this also the guy that healed the dude that was born blind, like he's never been able to see, and, and Jesus like did some, some cool stuff there, and then he could see. Why, why didn't he do anything here? Where was he? There's seeds of doubt in the story between two different parties of people, half of which say Jesus is good, see how much he loves him, versus where was he? What a joke, that sort of thought, and we're gonna come back to that. Jesus was deeply disturbed again when he came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone covered the entrance. Some people say that this means that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus have a good bit of money because normal people aren't buried in tombs with big stones. This is a, a, a grave site of some means. Also, in the next chapter, Mary is present before Jesus and she takes really expensive ointment and breaks it and then begins to put it on Jesus. So it seems as though these people have some money and it demonstrates the fact that Jesus is uh, in mixed company with the folks that he hangs out with. Okay, just stick that one away. It's not really going anywhere, but just so you know. Jesus says, remove the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man said, Lord, the smell will be awful. You love Martha. <laughs> She's real practical. <laughs> Jesus, we're all here. Let's not, okay? Again, I know I've said this, it's so funny. In the King James, it says, he stinketh. That's, that's good, that's good comedy, you know? Like, plays really well. Lord, the smell will be awful, he's been dead four days. And Jesus replied, didn't I tell you? Remember that, remember that conversation, Martha, that we just had, where I said, I'm the resurrection and the life, do you believe this? And you said, yeah, I believe it. And now you're here talking about the stink? Martha, stick with me. Stick with me. Didn't I tell you that if you believe, you're gonna see God's glory right here and right now? So it says that they removed the stone. Jesus looked up and said, not, Father, help me, or Father, do this. He says, Father, thank you for hearing me. I know you always hear me. I say this for the benefit of the crowd standing here so that they will believe that you sent me. I'm about to do something that's pretty good. This is gonna be a pretty good miracle, and you'd think that most rational people, upon seeing this, would be able to say, I'm gonna side with this guy. I'm gonna be on Team Jesus. I was on the fence before, but now he's calling dead people out of tombs. I think I'm gonna go ahead and roll with Jesus. That's the thought. Having said this, Jesus shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his feet bound and his hands tied and his face covered with a cloth. Jesus said to them, untie him and let him go. Now this is where I want us to focus in this evening. Okay, so all of that's really good stuff. Uh, and here we're gonna begin to 
place our foundation for, for some of my comments this evening. Therefore, many of the Jews who came with Mary and saw what Jesus did, they believed in him. But some of them, some of them went to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the guys a chapter before that are like, we gotta kill this guy. They begin to pick up stones to throw them at Jesus. And he does this miracle, and some people believe him. Some people even say, like, the majority of the people there believe him. But then there's others. Some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. I want you to sit with that for a second and understand the implications of what that would have initiated in Jesus' life. Understand what that action in the Gospel of John is doing to further the story. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees, they called together the council, uh, the Sanhedrin in, in the Greek, and said, what are we going to do? This man is doing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on just like this, then everybody is going to believe in him, subtext. And that's a problem. If people start following Jesus, then we're on the hook. Specifically, it says, then the Romans, the power structure, the people that are in charge of all things, the people that are allowing the Jews in this moment to, to play temple, more or less, that are putting the high priests in place and allowing them to do whatever it is that they do. But if Rome wanted to, they could just take one step in and demolish Jerusalem, demolish the temple, demolish the high priests, demolish the Sanhedrin, demolish whoever it is that they want to demolish. And they're afraid. They say, then the Romans, the people that are in, in charge, they're going to come and take away both our temple and our people. One of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, told them, you don't know anything. A lot of commentators make a big deal about this phrase here, that year. Uh, a high priest appointment is usually one for life. And so what people usually say with John, it's not that John doesn't know what's happening here, but they're highlighting the fact that Caiaphas is the guy who's ruling the temple when Jesus dies. Caiaphas is the one where all of this important stuff is happening. He's the one who was ruling that year. And he says, you don't know anything. You don't see that it's better for you that one man die for the people rather than the whole nation be destroyed. This is really cool, and I wanna develop an idea with you. What the author does is he gives you some behind-the-scenes commentary on what all of this means. It says, he didn't say this, Caiaphas didn't say that. Remember the bit where he says, it's gonna be better for Jesus to die for everybody. How did Caiaphas mean that? If Jesus dies, we will be okay, because Rome won't step in and pounce. If we can squelch the rebellion by getting rid of its leader, then we'll be okay. Now, good Christians, in the 21st century, in the church, some of you that have said a version of the sinner's prayer, some of you that have said, Jesus, I'm a sinner, I believe in you, help me. Jesus' death is ironic because Caiaphas says, if we kill him, we'll be okay but Jesus' death actually leads to uh, the very truth of what Caiaphas is saying. If we get rid of him, then it will be better for everyone in the world. Do you see that irony there? It's pretty thick, okay? 
And then John says this, he didn't say this on his own. As high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would soon die for the nation, and not only for the nation, Jesus would also die so that God's children scattered everywhere would be gathered together as one. The author is saying, this is what all of this stuff means. The fact that Jesus is going to die and and be raised from the dead, this is important, and the author of the book is telling us why this is important. I'm a huge nerd, and the way that I grew up was you read the Bible, and you take every word literally, more or less, and you just just read it and you just go. And I wanna push back on that just because of what the Bible is actually saying. One scholar whose name is Gail R. O'Day, and you know it's serious when you bring out the middle initial. (laughs) You know that's serious. I tried to convince Kate that when we had our children to give them three names and then the last name because legit scholars, you don't just have one initial, you've got two. (laughs) You know, you just, Joshua, T, R, F, B, James. Like the more initials you have, the more you command people's respect, okay? (laughs) She's writing this commentary and she says, the fourth evangelist, the person that's writing the book of John, did not separate recounting the story from interpreting the story. You don't know what's happening. I'm gonna tell you though, because this is so good. He he didn't separate recounting the story from interpreting the story and that unity of purpose, it shapes all aspects of the gospel. I I had a lot more words on there and as I was prepping and reading, I just looked at him and I said, they they don't care, they don't wanna read more. So let's just move on to, to this slide to let you know what's happening here, okay? There's like two levels in the gospel of John. Uh, J.L. Martin would call this a dual reading of the narrative because you have a couple of different things happening in this, in this story. You've got Jesus' time, the stuff that's happening in 30 to 33 AD when Jesus is doing ministry and, and leading to his eventual death. And then you also have the context in which the author is writing and the audience is reading. You got it? Now, what's interesting about this is Jesus' time, let's just put it in 33-ish CE or AD, whatever you wanna do there, and the author or the audience's time in 100-ish CE, that's a little bit late, but at least 90. It's a period of 60 some odd years in between when the stuff happened and when the person was writing. And in between those two times, we've got really important things that have taken place. Like they're all scared about what Rome's going to do, and then in 30 years or so, Rome does it. They destroy Jerusalem, they destroy the temple, they destroy all the stuff. And what John is doing when he's writing, he's writing here, and this is in the, in the rear view. It's also the time when you've had the parting of the ways, where like Christians become a separate group from the Jews. When Jesus was here, when Paul was writing, it was like they're all in the same, in the same team, but then there's a moment when it splits. And this is in the rear view, sort of, of when John is writing this gospel. You also have the rise of the Pharisees, <laughs> when the Pharisees become important people. If you read John's gospel, you see that the Pharisees are important people, but they really weren't that important when Jesus was here. The author is kind of taking something that's known and throwing it back on the text here. We have all of this that's informing what John is saying and what Gail R. O'Day would want us to know is John's gospel 
this is why it's so cool. John's gospel is a shaped gospel. When I was growing up, it was all about like, what happened? What's the history? Help me understand this. But what she wants us to say is, it's, it's purposefully shaped and told in a certain way to let you see things that are important. Factoid. You would think that the raising of Lazarus from the dead, you'd think that's pretty important, right? You'd think that's one of Jesus' pretty cool tricks, right? How many books are written about Jesus? How many gospels are there? Four. Four. For extra bonus points, what are they? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, yes. How many of those gospels contain this, the really cool story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead? Just the one. Isn't that really interesting? <laughs> it's shaped history. Also note, in these four Gospels, when Jesus cleanses the temple, remember he shows up and he chucks the table saying, you've turned the temple into a den of thieves. You're starting to rip off your own people who just wanna come and sacrifice. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that is at the end and becomes the impetus for Jesus's death. But in John, it's in the very beginning, and the impetus for Jesus' death is right here. It's Lazarus. Interesting, Kelly Black, is it not? Yes, it is. Right? So this is shaped history and theology, and all I really want you to know is when you read it, dive into that stuff. Why is the story told in the way that it's told, and what do we glean from that in this passage? And don't rest on your laurels. How often are you gonna say that? That's nice. Don't rest on what you think you know because you probably don't know what you think you know. Yes. Dramatic sweat wipe. Okay, from that day, the, the religious leaders, they plotted to kill him. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks. And a lot of commentary in between, okay? So decipher what's the word of God and what's other things. When you talk about Lazarus, usually what you want to focus on is, is the big miracle, right? It's the fact that a dead guy who's been hanging out in the tomb, dead for four days, is no longer dead, but Jesus commands him to come out and he has such authority that he's able to, to move from being dead to being alive. One commentator says this, a lot of words, brace yourself, I'll read them to you, and I'll read them to you very in a dramatic style, okay? So don't look at the words if, if, you, if they're gonna make you go crazy. The present passage, N.T. Wright says, is one of the most dramatic moments in the whole story of Jesus. He stands in front of a large crowd, he puts his reputation on the line. Because <laughs> if he says, Lazarus, get out, and nothing happens, that's kind of a deflating moment, right? <laughs> in the ministry. I say, get out! No, seriously, <laughs> now, <laughs> and we go. It's like when I was playing basketball in the yard, this is not like what it is at all, but I'm just gonna say it anyway. And you're like, you got, you're playing basketball, and it's like you start counting down like five, four, three, two, one, and then you clank it, you're like, and he was fouled. <laughs> no, so like Jesus saying, and go, now. <laughs> like that sort of a moment, all right. Just let that be a blessing to you this week. <laughs> he shouts to Lazarus to come out, and the dead man comes out. It's a heart-stopping moment of shuddering horror, because really, the last time you saw a dead person not be dead anymore, right. that's scary. 
I would assume, I haven't seen that, but if that were to happen, I would assume. Okay, the dead man comes out, it's a heart-sobbing moment of shuddering horror and overwhelming joy mixed together like dark mud and liquid gold. And I immediately think of Velveeta cheese, <laughs> right? Whenever you're talking about Velveeta, like liquid gold. And then N.T. Wright says this, and I just wanna pump the brakes a bit, Tom. I think you're going too far. If we don't feel its power and find ourselves driven to awe and thanks and hope, then we either haven't learned to read, bit rude, or we have hearts of stone. Or we've got legit questions about a dead person not being dead anymore, you know? Or we're wondering how shaped is this story in John's gospel? Like there's, there's many reasons. Or you, you, you are so inundated with all things church that you don't care anymore. Like uh, Lazarus, yes, I know. Dead, not dead, he stinketh, whatever. <laughs> Move on, get to the good stuff. I don't even know what the good stuff would be there. It's like, Jesus, death and resurrection. I know that, tell me something I don't know. Like, well, that's kind of the good stuff, you know? But there's lots of reasons why this might not land for us, but what N.T. Wright wants us to do is to sit and say, yeah, that's worth pondering. The presentation of Jesus, he's at one with God the Father and he's commanding people to come out of tombs. It's crazy. And what, what the author of the Gospel of John is wanting us to see is this story's going somewhere because you can't read about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead without thinking about what? There we go, yes. Jesus himself coming out of the tomb. Jesus himself defeating death and sin. Jesus becoming victorious. This story, especially the way that it's told, it's like giving you all of these flags saying like, hey, you should think about this. Hey, don't just read Lazarus without thinking about Jesus. Hey, in a handful of chapters, it's gonna get even cooler. It's what the author is attempting to do, and there's reasons why we might not see that or we might not really care about that, but I would encourage us to sit and celebrate that just even for a moment. And now we can move on because I wanna talk about some other things. Namely, in this passage, there's a couple of things that are happening. Number one, for the Jewish leadership, it's all about power. They don't want Jesus to start this rebellion and get squashed by Rome. They want Jesus to go away. They say, what are we going to do? This man's doing so many signs and miracles and stuff that's really cool and we don't know how to stop him. We gotta put him in some sort of restraining vessel to just get, get him out of here. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our people. Again, Professor O'Day says, were Jesus to attract more of a following, like the crowd that attempted to make him king or the crowd that will hail him as king when he enters Jerusalem, the Romans would hold the Jewish leadership responsible for this disturbance and take away their power. This is what is on the hook for Caiaphas and for the Pharisees and for the people that kind of skirt off and go and, and tell on Jesus, they don't want to be without power. So they set out to kill him. 
When Caiaphas uh, hears this, he says, you don't know anything, you don't see that it's better for you that one man die for the people rather than the whole nation be destroyed. And another way that you could frame this would be, rather than we lose control and we become displaced and we don't get to be high priest anymore and we don't get to set the rules anymore and we don't get to say who's in and who's out anymore. And we don't get to float around the temple looking all high and mighty anymore. And we don't get to say to people, be gone. Like there's all these things that are happening for these folks and they don't want to lose it. They'd rather kill Jesus than lose that sort of control. That's one side of of this equation. On the other side, there's observers that see this going on. And for them, it's about power too. It says, therefore, many of the Jews who came with Mary, they see what Jesus is doing and they believe in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Do you have any love in your heart for these people? No. Do you feel real separate from them? Do you feel as though when you're reading it, like, they're the bad guys, and we would never, never squash what Jesus is trying to do. We would never be the type of people to, 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 to put a pin in a rebellion. We would always want to preserve the power structures. This is my last slide. And I don't really have a good, this is gonna be a bad pastor revelation, are you ready? I don't know where this is going, okay? I know, I apologize. Because usually people have it all, all figured out, right? All week I'm reading this story. And it's part of that thing like where I grew up here and like, yeah, Lazarus, I get it, whatever. Like, yeah, he points us to Jesus, death and resurrection. You're like, yeah, I get it, whatever. But the thing that was, that was drawing me in more often than not was the bit about these people that go and, tell on Jesus. They go to the leaders and say, hey, we saw him. He's still doing crazy stuff. Let's get him. Because the more I thought about them, the more I began to ask of myself, how am I like that? And even one step farther, because right now, this is going to sound crass, you guys are sitting there and I'm up here. And I have the microphone, and I made this slideshow. And when you come in the door, I'm there to greet you. Hello. And I know it's awkward, because I'm an introvert, and I apologize for that. <laughs> but like, I thought about the people that went and told on Jesus, and I also thought about Caiaphas, and I thought about the Pharisees, and I thought about all the people that stood in front and wore really cool robes. And when they saw Jesus, they were threatened by him because of what he might upset in their life. They had no categories for Jesus. They only knew that what he was doing was threatening to their power. And then I think about the church, capital C. And I think about how people in my position lord their power over everyone else. And I thought about all the pastors that see kids becoming 
uh, victims of sexual abuse, and they don't say anything. And all the pastors that hear from women about the misogyny that happens in their churches, and, and they don't say anything. And I thought about all the people that would go and plead with their leaders, their pastors, their people in authority to help them, to do something, and they say, I don't have time for that. May it never be. And when it is, let's shut it down. I'm fully aware that power corrupts. And I'm fully aware that the church has problems because most of the people that take me up on having coffee, they're bringing a huge bag of stuff with them, throwing it on the table and saying, I've been hurt and I can't get over it because the person I was supposed to trust became the authoritarian who either let me in or didn't. And now I can't see Jesus in light of that. I also thought about the people in this text that see what Jesus is doing, they see the miracle, and then they just kind of sneak off and say, hey, let's stop this. And my heart went out to them. Because really what's happening there is they're seeing something that they don't have any concept, any framework for. It doesn't fit in their box. It doesn't fit in what they've received as a kid. It doesn't fit with what they think they know of the world. They've got this radical, homeless Jewish rabbi who says, hey, dead guy, get out of there. And they have no freaking idea what to do with that. And I began to think of a lot of us that can't really understand what God is doing in the world, but when we get a clue, sometimes we want to limit it back to what's comfortable and what we know. And when we see something or hear something that pokes and prods against it, we kind of slip off and say, I don't know about that. I don't like what I'm seeing. Can we get it back to normal? We can get so lost in this story, not only in, in just saying like, yeah, I get it, it's old news, whatever, he healed a guy, he brought him back from the dead, whatever, and like just pause there and say, well, that's a ridiculous response to that story, for one. But also, the way that, that the church sometimes operates, we show ourselves to be the same types of people as Caiaphas, as the Pharisees, and as the people that sneak off and just want everything to go back to what it was. Because we don't want to think, I'm going to say some things out loud. You ready? We don't want to think about LGBT inclusion. We don't want to think about racial issues that are plaguing the church. We don't want to think about the people in places of power that are not only demeaning their people, but abusing their people. We don't want to think about things that we haven't been given as kids growing up. We don't want to be pushed and moved and have new thoughts. We don't want to go down that road. We just want to be comfortable. Let's come full circle for a second. I'm gonna lay in this plane. Remember that whole bit with the really cool graphic that I had? Life in the, the present age and the age to come. You saw how cool that was, right? It was nice. This is at the heart of everything that we do. 
Because at a fundamental level, the fact that when Jesus is raised from the dead, he subverts everything, he is still subverting everything. And what he's asking us to do is to partner with him and not be people in places of authority that become the the folks that say who's in and who's out. That's not what we're called to. We're also not called to be the people that sneak over here and say, hey, let's just keep it how it's supposed to be. Let's just clamp it down and and make sure that we can kick people out and accept people, whoever we want. Let's, Let's not do that. That's just not what it is. What Jesus is calling us to do is to bring heaven to earth, to bring the age to come into the present. He's calling us to participate with him in subverting the power structures that are hurting people and subjugating people and demanding instead that we love him with everything that we have and we love our neighbor with everything that we have. Guys, I'll be honest, I feel like a broken record up here. That's like my go-to right now. We're called, man, to love people and to love them well and to love when it hurts and to love when it challenges the things that we thought we knew and instead to be people who are agents of all the good stuff that Jesus has to offer. He says in this passage, I am the resurrection and the life. Even though you die, you will live. Do you believe this? Let's not reduce that call to a decision that we make up here that doesn't translate out there. So if we've made the decision up here and we're Caiaphas and we're the Pharisees and we're the people sneaking off to the corner to try to put a kibosh on what God is doing, then let's let this infect everything else Let's let Jesus be the resurrection and the life. Let's let us experience it and then share it with everybody that we know with reckless abandon because I truly believe that that is what is needed to change the world. Thanks for listening to this week's teaching from the Restoration Project. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to join us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. If you'd like more information on TRP, please visit our website at www.restoresby.org. And for previous sermons, check out our SoundCloud page at www.soundcloud.com forward slash restoresby or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. See you next week.